Well, welcome again, everyone. It's great to be with you. Um, if you're new here, uh, visiting today, we've been bouncing around the Gospel of Matthew and taking a look at some of the key uh, components of our mission statement and pulling out some uh, different truths and different aspects of those, those various words. And this morning is one that I've been looking forward to since I planned this uh, series, and that is gospel. What do we mean when we say gospel, that we're a gospel-centered church? An in-town Presbyterian church is a community seeking to embody the historic Christian gospel in the city of Portland. Now, we have been bouncing around, going from chapter 1 to 12 and to 7 and 13 and so forth, and there's some advantages to that because we can kind of pick and choose, but there's some disadvantages in that we kind of have to dive into a particular text without necessarily the context, and context is very important. And this passage that I'm about to read to you is part of a larger package of of stories and incidents that drive home the idea over and over that the first shall be last, or for our purposes, winning is for losers. Early part of chapter 9, Jesus, as Richard alluded to, gathers little children to himself to point out that their lowly and humble status has something to do with receiving the kingdom in the right way. And then Jesus has this conversation with the rich young man that comes as a contrast, that he has to undercut this young man's attitude towards self-help salvation to make the point that salvation is all about God and all about grace. And then afterwards, which we'll look at next week, Jesus makes yet another prediction of His coming death, that it will take nothing short of His crucifixion to secure this saving, free grace, all hammering home this very simple but very profound and very difficult point that the first shall be last and the last first, that the way up is down, that winning is for losers. So, with that as background, let me read our gospel reading. This is Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and received a denarius. So when these came, who were hired fir- those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius, and when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only for one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. 
Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Have you ever felt cheated? Well, it's kind of a dumb question. Of course you have. Well, recall that to mind. Recall what it feels like to be cheated. Maybe you were in a group project at work or at school, and you put in as much time as everyone and more than some, and yet at the end of the project, the person who worked the least gets the same amount of credit that you do. They get the same A that you did. Maybe you've saved up for a new computer, and you've done your, work, your homework, and you drop a couple of grand on a new MacBook Pro, and you love it. It's super fast. And then a month later, Apple announces a brand new MacBook Super Pro with mega retina, retina display, and you're bummed. You feel cheated. Or maybe you're the firstborn in your home, and so much more is expected of you than your younger siblings. You were doing dishes when you were six. You were doing your own laundry when you were eight. You were cutting the grass when you were ten, but your little brother is strategically incompetent as it comes to chores, and he gets out of everything, and he's watching movies at nine that you weren't allowed to watch when you were 15. I've never heard this in my household. Can't relate. Well, if any of these happen to you, you know how the first few groups of workers in this parable felt. They felt cheated. And in any normal, reasonable system of fairness, they would have a case, right? We can relate to them. But in Matthew 20, Jesus is trying to bug us a little bit. He's trying to get under our skin. He's trying to poke us and provoke us a little bit to finally see that in His kingdom, we're not dealing with a normal system of fairness, of compensation, or of merit. Now, like most parables, the basic story is quite simple. A vintner, in our translation, a farmer, our landowner, is desperate to get his crop of grapes harvested. Maybe the weather is threatening to turn very terrible the next day, or maybe he's waited till the last minute. We don't know. But he's desperate. Whatever the situation, he needs the work done in one day. So at the crack of dawn, he finds his first set of workers. Now, he hires them, promising them a denarius for their trouble, and this is about a day's wage. So let's just call it, for the sake of simplicity, $100. He promises them if they work for him, they'll get $100 at the end of the day. Not a bad deal. So these people work literally from sunup to sundown right through the, the heat of the day in the Middle East. It's quite hot. The sun's bearing down. But the picking is not proceeding fast enough. And so at four intervals, at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3 p.m., and then as late as 5 p.m., only one hour before quitting time, the farmer keeps going and hiring more guys. Now, Matthew purposefully hovers over this last group, the last group of folks that were hired. These are not your eager beavers. These are not the guys that are down at the town square at the crack of dawn, sticking their hand up, waiting to be hired. You know, maybe they slept in. Maybe they weren't all that interested in working. Maybe they'd rather sit in the town square and drink cheap beer and play cards all day. That's their intention for all we know. But at some point, the farmer is so desperate that he's willing to hire these slackers, these ne'er-do-wells, the ones who are about to pack it in at 5 o'clock and go get some frozen pizza and watch TV for the rest of the night. 
He's so desperate, he's going to hire these guys. And when he gets to them, he says, why have you guys been lazing around all day? What are you doing in this town square all day doing nothing? And they basically reply, well, we don't know. I guess it's because no one's asked us. No one's hired us. In other words, no one looked at these people and said, I want them on my team. I want them to come and work for me. No one wanted their help. These were the kinds of people that everyone tried not to hire. Well, maybe it's because he's the only one that's shown them dignity. Maybe it's because there's only an hour left and they figured, well, I can go out and put an hour in. No big deal. We can get a little pocket and a little money in our pocket for not much work. Well, they agree and they head out to harvest and they clock in for an hour. But afterwards, this is when Jesus pulls a narrative fast one on us. Because he makes sure that the one-hour pickers, they get paid first. Had they been paid after the crack of dawn folks, the 12-hour people, after they had already left with their hard-earned denarius, there wouldn't have been much punch in this parable. They wouldn't have been any wiser. But instead, Jesus' vintner, his farmer, makes sure that the people who work the longest witness the fact that these lazy bums who worked an hour get paid one denarius each. But you know what? They didn't get mad at that. Quite the contrary. They thought, oh, okay, this guy is quite generous. You know, they could count. They could do simple multiplication. And so if the slackers worked only an hour and they got paid a denarius or a hundred bucks, then that meant the going rate for a day's work in the vineyard was one denarius per hour. They're about to have a very good day. Twelve hundred bucks for one day's work. Sure, they worked hard. Sure, they've got a sunburn, but now they can stop home, a stop on the way home uh, by Freddy's and pick up a couple of steaks and pick up that bottle of Pinot Noir that's been taunting them from the top shelf. They're going to have a great night, except that's not how it happens. Everyone, of course, gets the same pay. Now, you can tell when someone is angry, when someone feels cheated. You know, the jaw clenches up. They start getting this strange look on their face, this pained look. Their face contorts. And you can picture these 12-hour workers because you can imagine your own face in that situation, right? You're looking at this measly pay that you've worked 12 hours for that the guy on your left, this lazy bum, has the same amount. And you look at it and you think, this cannot be fair. This cannot be right. And they begin to grumble among themselves. Those in verse 12, it says, were hired last, worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. Wow, there's a dozen sermons in there in that one verse. You have made them equal to us. But the farmer says, look, friend, which is much nicer than it sounds. It's more like, look, pal, or look, buster, Look, Buster, do I have to check in with you about what I can do with my money? You weren't cheated. You got everything that I promised to you. The farmer, the vintner, the landowner puts the first last and the last first. Now, if the farmer in this parable is God, and I think we're made to 
think that he is, aren't we meant to see that there aren't any insiders and outsiders in his harvest field? That up is down and down is up, that last is first and first is last. Everything is inverted. Everything is, revel- uh, is, is completely contrary to how we would think. Aren't the disciples who are standing there hearing this to conclude that though they've been with Jesus the entire time of his ministry, though they've put in the hours and the blood, sweat, and tears, that that doesn't guarantee that they're going to be the favored few in the kingdom for all of eternity. Don't be surprised, hard worker, religious person, the one who has always done more than your younger brother, when you share the stage with slackers and bums and 'er ne'er-do-wells. As we've said over and over, God's grace pools at the bottom end of the bell curve. And if you're going to get wet, you have to be willing to swim with those kinds of people. Grace is not the kind of thing that you can earn or store up. It's not something that you can lay claim upon because of your hard work. It's not something that you can look at in your account and compare to someone else's. Because in Jesus, all have the same. Whether you're the missionary who's never missed Sunday school and you know the catechism, or you're the drug addict with track marks on your arm and you keep falling off the wagon, both of you are equally in need of grace, and both of you in Christ are equal recipients of God's grace. But you see, people who have been around the church for a while. They're respectable among us, those who know the gig, those of us with good theology. We can learn, we can grow to assume that we are the special ones. We're God's inner circle. And God says to us, look, pal, (laughs) look, buster, that's not the way this works. Because you see, while we're busy doing our accounting and our bookkeeping comparing our lot to the others and feeling cheated, God, where is He? He's out in the town square gathering up the slackers and the bums and the 'er ne'er-do-wells and the unemployed and all of those that we look upon and say, how could they be recipients of God's grace? He goes after the very people that everybody else tries to ignore, welcoming them with the same magnanimous love and favor that those of us who played by the rules enjoyed. Writer Robert Farrah Capon says, this parable is about, get this, a grace that works by raising the dead, not by rewarding the rewardable. And it is about a judgment that falls hard only upon those who object to the indiscriminate catholicity of this arrangement. Wow, right? The judgment that falls only upon those who object to the indiscriminate catholicity of this arrangement. That is, everyone gets in by grace, and only by grace. Now, there's one more thing before we move on to just a couple of hopefully relevant takeaways. Who did you identify with in this parable? Who is it most easy to feel what they were feeling? Wasn't it the 12-hour workers? Didn't you automatically feel cheated as they were cheated? Didn't you feel 
their sense of loss? Didn't you feel their pain? Didn't you identify with the folks that were hired at the crack of dawn and had put in their work? Maybe you didn't, but I sure did. You read this passage, and it's so easy to step into their shoes. But who told you, who told me that we were the ones working for 12 hours? How do you know that your work totals 12 hours and not the measly one or half hour or 15 minutes worth of good labor? The wonderful preacher Barbara Brown Taylor imagines that in in the parable, when the farmer improbably hands the one-hour pickers a whole day's wage, that there must have been hoots of laughter with some, you know, high fives. They couldn't believe their luck. When they get that denarius for one-hour work, their day has been made, and they're laughing, and probably laughing when the other person who's worked 12 hours gets the same thing. They're in a huddle high-fiving one another. Isn't it an indictment, if you are like me, that we identified with the indignation of the 12-hour workers and not with the laughter of the one-hour worker? Shouldn't we be the ones squealing with laughter, head over heels, happy, jumping up and down, throwing high fives because we were recognized, we were included, we were wanted, we were desired? Who cares what someone else gets? Look what we got. Look what Jesus has given to us. They couldn't believe their luck, and we shouldn't believe ours. Isn't Jesus saying that the one who really understands grace won't feel gypped by being lumped in with all the other sad sacks, but astonished that we were included at all? The ones, you see, friends, who see themselves as first always feel at the back of the line. But those of us who see ourselves at the back of the line, we can imagine the enormity of God's grace without comparing what we have to other people. So what do we do with this? We've been trying to be practical in this series because it is, after all, about what we are who we are and what we do as a church. So, what are we to do with this? Just a couple of things. Don't we often want to be part of a church that's winning? (laughs) Don't we want to be part of a church that's hitting on all cylinders, that people are writing articles about, that there's buzz in the streets, that people are pouring in the doors? Don't we want that? All of us want to be on the, the winning team. And so, Perhaps it's easy for those of us who have been around in town for a while to get discouraged as we, year after year, try to make budget. Year after year, we see people streaming in the front and streaming out the back. When other people can just throw up a shingle and rent a building and a thousand people show up on a Sunday morning. You know, I I pray that God would grow our ministry. I pray that we would have the resources to do the things that we've been talking about during during this series, that we would be able to expand into something that would be remarkable. And there's nothing wrong with that prayer. But here's the thing. If God is the farmer, if God is the vintner, can't He deploy His laborers in any way He wants Can't He deploy us in the way that He sees fit? 
even if we're the one-hour workers and our harvest isn't all that impressive, couldn't we still believe that God is at work in our midst and what He is doing in our tiny little church is important and it's vital? And we should learn, as Zechariah says, not dare despise the day of small things. Well, secondly, maybe more personally, individually, is there something that you're looking at as your 12-hour day? Something you use to separate yourself from the hoi polloi. Maybe there's someone in your community group, and they're just not quite as socially dexterous as you, and they kind of get on your nerves. They don't follow the study as, as quickly. They don't add as much to the conversation as you do, and you get frustrated. Or maybe it's the church down the street. Maybe it's the person in the pew next to you, and their theology just doesn't quite measure up to yours. Or it could be something a little bit more closely analogous with this parable. And here's where maybe I bug you, I provoke you, I get under your skin a little bit. Because maybe you're thinking, well, you know what, I've worked hard for what I've gotten in life. There's no free ride for me. And so, maybe you find yourself at times looking down on those on unemployment, those who are getting a welfare check, those who are getting the free health care subsidies that you were promised that you don't get and they get, maybe those that are on the corner of the street with cardboard signs that you try to avoid eye contact when you pull up right next to them and you think those people. Well, isn't Jesus telling us in this parable that we are those people, whatever those represents in your mind? Aren't we those people? We were the ones that needed a handout and a hand up. We were the ones, in fact, who needed the death of Jesus's, Jesus himself to get in. We are the one-hour people. But friends, here's the hope and here's the good news is that Jesus didn't simply call the outsider, but He became an outsider. He was crucified outside the city between two thieves, and it took His death to bring you in, and yet He willingly went to the cross to do it, to bring us slackers, us one-hour workers in. He became an outsider so that you can become an insider. He took His place on the trash heap so that you can take your place on His throne. You see, we're fond of saying that we don't measure up to God's standards, and of course that's true, but maybe we should consider that sometimes God doesn't measure up to ours. You see, He's far too forgiving. He's far too profligate, far too liberal with His love, and so we tame Him. We tame His grace. We tame His love. We tame Him to hang around people that happen to look and act and think just like we do. And we get antsy when someone who doesn't look like us, who doesn't think like us, gets the same grace that we do. When His grace goes to people who only worked for one hour, unlike us. But friends, We're all one-hour people to someone and in some way. And yet Jesus looks at you and He says, yes, I want relationship with you. I want you in my household. 
I want you at my feast, at my table. So come and join him as we confess our faith, as I pray, and then as we come to that table, take your seat there by his grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would, if necessary, grab us by the lapels and shake us, wrestle down our pride and our self-assurance, wrestle down all of those ways that we try to set ourselves up as number one, whether we do that individually, whether we do that in our household, at school, at work, whether we do that as a church where we feel like we are first. Lord, help us to remember that you came for the lost and the last and the least. And Lord, let us rejoice over that. As we confess our faith, would you equip us to walk into this next week as the last, as the least, as the lost that you have gathered. And let us come to this table and be fed and nourished, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.